Nolan Foot slides it across left for Yermak and Welcome to the sixth episode of the Elite Prospects podcast with J.D. Burke and Craig Button. I am, of course, the editor-in-chief of Elite Prospects, and Craig Button, my intrepid co-host, is the director of scouting <laughs> with TSN. Craig, how are you doing today? Well, I've never been uh, labeled intrepid, but, but I'll take it. <laughs> you know what? Any excuse to drop intrepid? Yeah. I, I'm all for it. It's one of those words that's just fun to put out there. Uh, but But we've... You know, there's some less than fun news out there that we're going to have to discuss in this week's show. Uh, also, some really fun stuff. We got the announcement of Team Canada and how they're going to approach the the World Juniors. We've also got Mark Yannetti joining us. And what a great interview that was. Uh, I mean, I could have just talked to him for another three hours, Craig. I mean, I know with your schedule that that would never be a possibility. But, but I think we could have gotten another three hours of great prospect talk out of him. He's a man who uh, has great insights. He's very thorough about his analysis. And he does a really great job of communicating the, the craft of scouting, I, I find. So uh, I was really happy with how that interview turned out. And I think that our audience is going to be a big fan of it as well. Yeah, no question. And, you know, Mark has a lot of experience. His dad, Joe, was a was a very successful scout for a lot of years. And, you know, when you listen to Mark, I, I, I think there's so many things that you can take away from it. You know, not just the process, not just the art of scouting, but you know, where you're at and how you're thinking at any moment of the draft and how you're looking at any moment of the draft process with respect to the evaluation of players along those timelines. And, you know, when, when, you, can, when you can zero in specifically on those timelines and those data points, as I like to call them, you know, you can really, you know, have a, have a focus on those particular things and understand what they are as you're trying to get to an end equation. And, uh, you know, I think that, that, that Mark does, a, as you point out, does an outstanding job of uh, articulating that. Yeah, and I think it should be also a, a confidence-building interview if you're an LA Kings fan. I mean, I don't know if their amateur scouting has ever been in doubt. Uh, you don't build the teams that they have without a strong base of amateur scouting, but... You know, there, there are definitely some within the industry who, who push back against some of the advances in the field, whether that's access to analytics, access to, to isolation shift uh, videos. And, and Mark is just like, oh, no, he's, he's going to tell you that he's getting his analytics staff involved. He's telling you that he's going to cover ground with his, his ISO shift tapes. Uh, I, I found that really interesting. And I thought that was really just awesome to hear because... Uh, you know what, Craig, in a, a situation like this one where teams aren't going to have as many options for uh, live viewings available to them, I think the people who best adapt, the people who best respond to a changing environment and show a willingness to integrate new systems into their process, I think they're the teams that are going to come out on top this year. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I always feel and I feel very strongly about this. You know, there's many tools that can be utilized uh, to assess players. And, you know, w w what you're trying to assess in one area might require a different tool than what you're trying to assess in, in, in another area. And, and, and you talk about, you know, what you're seeing. Uh, 
what the numbers tell you, what your strength and conditioning uh, people tell you, what your physiologists tell you, you know, with, with respect to the, to, to the testing that goes on and, and everything, what your interviews tell you. So, you know, are, are you going to use, are you going to use the eye test in an interview? No, <laughs> but you know, you <laughs> might not work. Well, well, it, it, it doesn't because you, you you know you could get thrown you could get thrown off very easily, right? So you know I always like if you have a piece of wood that you need to cut in half, okay, and you go in your toolbox, okay, you can take a hammer and 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 get it in half. It's not going to be a clean cut, but when you have the saw and you're looking at it, you go, geez, that saw could make a nice clean cut, right? And so you know what? Understand what the job is at hand, and then get the right tool for it. And don't, don't totally. close your mind to tools. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And and I think that, you know what, for the most part too, I think the NHL is starting to adopt that that mindset. And I think it's it's one of those things where um, necessity is, is the mother of invention. I think that's the idiom. I'm terrible with those, Craig. I always somehow mix up idioms. I'm a little bit like that, that ad that's running right now where the guy gets all the popular sayings wrong. Uh, for some reason, idioms always escape me, but I think that's the one that I have in mind. And I think that's the one that is applicable here. Now you talked about the interview process and, and this kind of unfortunately segues us into another difficult topic. And this would be the status of one Mitchell Miller, the Arizona Coyotes first draft pick in the 2020 draft. Uh, there, there are some pretty damning uh, damning pieces of information here. And, and I also think that before we get into a broader conversation about Mitchell Miller, everything that went into that pick and the events that have followed, uh, I have to offer our audience a bit of a content warning here. Uh, we are going to be discussing things that might fall under the branch of, of hate crimes, of, of, of racism and violence. And uh, there's just no way to, to broach this subject without getting into those details. So I want to give you the chance as our audience, if uh, if that isn't something you would like to engage in, to now kind of skip ahead maybe a few minutes uh, so that you don't have to be confronted with those topics. Now, Craig, we were talking before we went on the air about uh, just just the fact that there was this knowledge out there of the Mitchell Miller story uh, going into the draft process. Some teams had more information than others. Uh, some went about interviewing Mitchell Miller themselves and <clears throat> trying to get at the the bottom of this story and and the story is pretty grim uh the allegations that that have been since substantiated by mitchell miller pleading guilty uh they involve him physically abusing uh, a disabled black teenager uh, going back i think as many as eight years and and in the conversation that has followed the mother of the child who who mitchell miller assaulted uh, has gone on to reveal that there was a racialized component uh, there was also the fact that Mitchell Miller had shown no remorse. There was also the fact that, and this one really disturbed me, Craig, uh, that Miller would drive by their house on his bike even two years after the court charges. Um, I, I, I've got some thoughts on this, but, but you've been in the, I'm sure you've never encountered a situation like this, but you've been in the war room uh, when there are, there are players who have this sort of checkered past and, and you've probably had to discuss have they shown remorse? Can they grow? Can we work with them? Uh, is there a redemption story to be told here? Um, did you ever encounter something like that in your time in, in the decision-making process? Not that I can recall. Nothing this grim, eh? 
Nothing, nothing. And, uh, you know, you, you go back through your mental Rolodex and try to, you know, see, think about any of those. I mean, hey, listen, over the course of time, you, you know, you hear uh, stories about players or, you know, potential draft picks. And, and, and you, the key thing here, in my view, is you have to investigate them. I'm going to share a quick story, and it has, you know, just about about this exact scenario. Jeffrey, not, not this exact scenario, but the investigative process. Jeffrey's in, in his draft year in 1994. Uh, the year before, as a 16-year-old, he scored 50 goals in the Western Hockey League. And early on in the seat of his next year of his draft year, uh, there were some comments made by him about him by a, by, by a very prominent scout in the industry early on in the year and re- really questioning his character. So, you know, you watch, you, you, you watch Jeff play, you see he's such a good player. We get to uh, the end of the year and we're really starting to feel in Dallas that boy, oh boy, you know, Jeff Friesen may slide in the draft. So what we did is, is we just, we went and investigated in, in, in a manner that we felt was really, really strong. We went right into Regina. We spent time with uh, people that knew Jeff, teachers, uh, billets, people like that, to try to ascertain, you know, w- what was accurate, what wasn't accurate, to try to kind of complete the picture. We could not find one thing that could corroborate anything that was said uh, in, in, in the fall prior to his uh, draft year. Furthermore, our assistant coach, Rick Wilson, his wife, Carol, was from the hometown of Jeffries, and so we, and we asked her to go and see if there was any background to this as he was growing up uh, in, in, his, in, in that town. We could not corroborate one thing. In fact, it, it was almost the exact opposite. So what I'm trying to illustrate here is you have to be thorough in your investigative process because, you know, if you, if you just take somebody's word or you just kind of say uh, in, the, in, in the case of Jeff, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, everything's okay. You got to go and investigate because, you know, it's not just the person. It's not just the player you're bringing into your organization. It's the person. So in the case of Mitchell Miller, you know, I mean, he, 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 he got charged and, and convicted when he was 14 years of age and the punishment was meted out. And it's a story to, to what extent I can't speak for NHL teams, but it was a story that was known. It was, it was something that the, 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 there was nothing good about it, but it was a story that was known. Now, again, were the Arizona Coyotes now renouncing the rights to Mitchell Miller failed? They didn't go and do the investigative work. It's nice to receive a letter from Mitchell Miller. It's nice to say we're going to give second chances. But second chances are earned, J.D. They're not just uh, handed out. And clearly, as we have found out from Isaiah's mother in in, in her letter, a very poignant letter, uh, a letter that that didn't make uh, really any sense as to uh, where Mitchell Miller was at with respect to uh, being honest about being remorseful. And that's a failure of the Arizona Coyotes. There's no other way to put it. They, they weren't thorough in their investigative process. And so, no. now, and so now they're dealing with this scenario. So it, it's not like, so you can know the story, 
but you, you, you didn't understand what was what, what happened after and, and really what was still very present, somebody that wasn't remorseful. Yeah, and, and I think that's the really important element here is that is that had he shown remorse, had he shown a propensity or a willingness to grow, uh, had he even apologized directly to the victim of this, yep. and th- that would that would make a world of difference here. And and I think that right now one of the the cultural buzzwords that we're all trying to kind of grasp in real time is the concept of of cancel culture. And and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because uh, we we could be here for another hour on that one. But I think ultimately what we have to take into account is. And, and we've spoken about the the class barriers to hockey a, a bunch of times, Craig, is, is the fact that there are so many people out there in this world. Think about how many people might have been talented enough to be a first-line NHLer, but they never got that opportunity because they weren't born into a place where the material conditions were there to take them to that place. You think about all the people who suffered an injury in high school that might have derailed their entire hockey career. And you think about the fact that they, they didn't get that opportunity. And it wasn't by any fault of their own. It was just the systemic barriers or injuries or something else that took that from them. And then you think about somebody like Mitchell Miller, who didn't have to overcome, who didn't have to overcome those barriers. You think about the fact that he had a special talent and an opportunity to use that to have a positive impact. I mean, we can talk about whether it's fair to attribute that sort of responsibility to a teenager playing hockey, but it's undeniable that if you have a platform that will take you to the place where you're an NHL draft pick, you can have a pretty substantially positive impact. He went in the opposite direction. Okay, and and, and we can talk about second chances. I don't think that suggesting that his capacity to be a millionaire playing hockey, I don't think suggesting that this should be limited or hampered or in any way impeded, uh, is canceling him, whatever that means. I think that there are consequences for your actions, and, and sometimes you have to suffer them, and sometimes they're grave. And if you think about all the people who didn't have, um, didn't have an active role in the reasons they couldn't get to the NHL, and you think about somebody like Mitchell Miller, it's really hard for me to drum up too much sympathy. Now, on that end, uh, we also have to be <clears throat> pretty firm in condemning the the Arizona Coyotes, uh, and and we have to condemn them for their lack of research, uh, the lack of of uh, digging that would have revealed this sort of information. Because as we found out in this week, in the time since the draft, uh, Isaiah Crayer Mothers, um, Crother Mayors, it's a bit of a tongue twister there, um, is is very willing to talk about this incident, is very willing to offer the information necessary. To, to help somebody make an informed choice. And so I think that there's no real excuse for the Coyotes not having this information and not letting it inform their decision-making. Now, to that end, I think that I also have to offer up uh, a bit of a mea culpa here because I did report on this story. And the reason I reported on it was I was talking to NHL teams last spring and I was saying, hey, what do you think of this Mitchell Miller kid? And I was met with some pretty uh, stark answers and some pretty stark condemnations. And I was pointed in the direction of this story and told that, you know, for certain teams, they would never draft him because of it. And I investigated and I looked into it, uh, but I wasn't aware of certain elements. And I think that's something that is important here is that certain elements of the story have only come to light because of the reporting done by Arizona Central. And the reason they were able to get those parts of the story <clears throat> 
And this was a brutal oversight on my part and one that was arrived at honestly enough. And it's an honest mistake, right? But they centered the victim and they gave the victim a chance to tell their part of the story. And I think if I had done that with my reporting, when I reported on the story in June, I might have been able to find this information myself. Now, am I, I'm not going to beat myself up too harshly over this, uh, but I do think that this was a mistake on my part and one that I have to own. And I just want to let it be known to the audience, to our listeners, that I'm aware of that. And I'll try to let it inform my reporting as I move forward. And uh, hopefully the next time, well, hopefully there isn't a next time, but if there is, I'll handle it much better than I did in the past. Well, I think that when we talk to about, uh, you know, second opportunities, I mean, you, I, I, I can't emphasize enough they have to be earned. They have to be earned. And, and there's nothing uh, uh, that, that precludes somebody from having a second opportunity. But what's happened to Mitchell Miller is because of his lack of action, with respect to remorse and really understanding, you know, the impact that he's had and, and, and the scars that are on Isaiah and, you know, maybe with him forever. But now, whatever opportunity he was granted by the Arizona Coyotes has been revoked. Will there be other opportunities that have been granted to him that will be revoked? And this has nothing to do with uh, I shouldn't say nothing. It has everything to do with Mitchell's actions or lack thereof. And so, you know, if, if, if he wants to get an opportunity, and like I said, whatever that may be, then you're going to have to go earn it. And it's not about telling me or writing letters. You have to go and clearly demonstrate with Isaiah and his family, you know, the, 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 the actions that will earn you the potential for a second opportunity. N nothing less is acceptable. And, and the Arizona counties are, 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 are the ones on the front lines having made this decision and now renouncing the rights to them. But it should be a lesson for every single hockey organization because this just isn't on the NHL. It's on the University of North Dakota. It's on uh, USA Hockey. And there may be others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's on Cedar Rapids Rough Riders for, for drafting him in the USHL after this took place and Honey Baked in, in the Michigan area. Uh, it's also on, for example, the Tri-City Storm for, for drafting him, uh, or sorry, trading for him. Uh, there's a lot of culpability here and a lot of people who, who have to look long and hard in the mirror and determine how they might better approach this scenario if it ever visits them in the future. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, you know what, it's a tough topic, Craig, but I'm, I'm glad that we discussed it, uh, because it's something that we need to, to, we need to shine a light on and we need to try and help, uh, the community grow from this. We need to kind of, I don't know, play a role in, in, in making sure that things like this don't happen again. Uh, and, and that the hockey community as a whole is viewed as a safe space for everyone. I think that's really important here. And insofar as we have a platform to, to help foster that kind of growth within the hockey community, uh, I'm glad that we took the, the, the moment here to make sure that we did our part. Uh, well, we hockey, also hockey gave him the opportunity. This happened mm -hmm. in a school setting. Yep. <laughs> it didn't happen. Like, from what I understand, this, was, this happened in school. 
Yep, so you're correct. You know, we, we have to we have to keep that in mind too. It didn't happen for for like it, it may have, but from what I know, that 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 was where it occurred. So, you know, the the, the hockey didn't do a good enough job in terms of investigating uh, the you know what had happened and the actions of Mitchell Miller and the inaction of Mitchell Miller and being remorseful and giving him other opportunities because he he, mm-hmm. he clearly didn't earn those. Nope, nope. And it'll be interesting too, because I, I do wonder, Craig, could we see a scenario where the University of uh, North Dakota withdraws their their scholarship? I mean, uh, the absolutely, release, we could. Absolutely, yeah. we could. At the press release they put out this week, though, Craig, I, I mean, uh, I said that we have to condemn the Arizona Coyotes. I think eventually they arri- they arrived at the right conclusion, even if their process was flawed. Uh, we can't say the same of the University of North Dakota just yet, just yet. And I think that's that's regrettable. Martin Luther uh, King said, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Yep. Yep. Better late than never too. Uh, you know, and, and I think that ultimately all eyes are now on uh, North Dakota uh, as much as they are on Mitchell Miller as well. So uh, we'll, we'll be, it'll be interesting to follow that one. Uh, if any news develops, we'll be sure to talk about it on this show. But in the meantime, we've got a great interview with Mark Yannetti. We're going to talk a lot about what the LA Kings did at the NHL draft 2020. We're going to talk a little bit about the prospects currently within their system. And we're even going to get into the scouting process as teams stare down an unprecedented 2020-21 season. Craig, thanks so much for joining me. And thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the Elite Prospects Podcast. And now we're happy to welcome to the program Mark Yannetti. He is the director of scouting of the Los Angeles Kings. They just had a really exciting NHL draft. And now, of course, Mark and the rest of his staff are preparing for how they're going to handle next year's draft. Of course, with far fewer live viewings, far fewer tournaments. It's going to be a really uh, exciting time uh, in terms of the developments we see in the world of scouting. And of course, with the LA Kings well-established reputation, uh, as a team that has embraced analytics and video and all that stuff, I'm sure Mark has a lot to say on how him and his franchise are going to handle this and the challenges that this year presents uh, for scouts and people looking to build their team through the draft as the Kings are. So, Mark, how are you doing? How's your day going? Oh, good. Busy, but good. Busy is good. I mean, uh, that's, that's hey, I mean, in a, in a wild, unprecedented time like this, being busy is always a good thing. Uh, what are the day-to-day operations like as somebody who is preparing for the amateur draft and perhaps preparing for the likelihood that you might be signing undrafted free agents this year? I guess, what is it like going into a season unlike any other as we are with this year? Well, preparing for the draft, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's basically two separate parts, preparing for the draft and then end stop and then move on to the next season uh, and preparing for a lot of the unknown. But preparing for the draft was very similar to years past because um, the lack of live views, really, the season was almost over. I mean, we missed about a month of it. Uh, the combine was probably the biggest uh, change. Uh, but in terms of draft preparation, it was, it was similar, but you were allowed to be more detailed. It gave you more time. Uh, we could focus, uh, you know, there's a finite amount of time so you can allocate your resources all over the board, or you can focus them on the, you know, we usually focus them on the top 45 players. Uh, this year we were able to focus them. We were able to get all the way up to, to 95 players uh, in the same, uh, giving, giving guys the same time. So that was probably the biggest difference. Uh, obviously a, a little more video work, a little more zoom work. Um, but 
but I don't think it was as drastically different as people made it out to be. Now this season, you know, once the draft's over, going into the season, um, the uncertainty for me is the hardest part. Uh, you have Quebec, you have the Quebec League playing. You have uh, the Swedish League, the Liga, KHL, you know, and, and some of their junior leagues and, and, and Division One leagues playing, and some of the other leagues not. And then the start dates are going to be November. Then the start dates are going to be December. Now the start dates are going to be January. Um, so for me, the, the biggest hurdle or the biggest challenge is the uncertainty because you you can't put a plan in place right now to scout the OHL. You can't put a plan in place to scout uh, the WHL. And we put a plan in place to scout the Quebec League and they shut down for two weeks. So um, even when you think you can put a plan in to incorporate live viewings and, and travel and logistics, um, they just stop or they just change completely. Uh, you know, I think Linköping right now, I think, uh, I think it just came out that 15 or more of their team is in COVID restriction. You know, anybody on our, you know, in our staff that was, had them planned or Jure Garden or, or team they were playing planned, that's all out the window. So it's, it's the logistics and the uncertainty that, that are the biggest, uh, the biggest hurdles. So Mark, a couple of questions here and, and I'll go back to, to the draft. You know, you you talk about a finite time. We know what those timelines are. You know, you you finish the season, you get to the combine. Now you have to the draft. First question is: Did, did you reach a point where you felt that uh, too much time was uh, was uh, overwhelming everybody in terms of making a decision? That's number one. And then number two, as we talk about this year. How important is it to go back through your archives of data on the players leading into this draft to use that maybe a lot more significantly than you would in other years? Oh, you know, it's funny. I'll answer the second part first because that was what uh, last yesterday and today, one of our meetings uh, uh, with, uh, with Jason Lewis, my scouting coordinator, and, and Chris Byrne, um, one of our meetings was exactly about that. Um, it, was, it, was, it was archive work. It was... It was uh, getting getting video, getting data, getting information from last year, and then uh, what we did is okay, great, that's easy. Oh, we'll just get the stuff from last year. But then now you got to factor in uh, timing. You got to factor in, you know, some of these guys are, you know, first of all, they're all draft years minus one, so they're all behind their peers physically for the most part. So we don't want to, you know, now we're saying, well, do we want video from the beginning of the year, do we, how, how much are we going to weigh stats from uh, October until December? Are we going to, are we going to throw them out? Are we going to weigh stats from January to, to, to April? Are we going to weigh them more heavily or, you know, are we going to, are we going to normalize the numbers? Are we going to, you know, uh, are we going to bring in, you know, like Rob Bowman and, and Jeff Solomon? Are we going to bring them in to, to kind of, to kind of create a formula of, you know, is there a formula for a draft year minus one um, to take into account the maturing during the season and, and, you know, and then extrapolate and play it towards the numbers. So um, it was funny. It was a pretty simple idea in terms of, yeah, let's get the stuff from last year, which is exactly what you said. Um, then turned into, you know, you got one of those, one of those cracks in the dam and, you know, you get 15 other little cracks that started that we had to follow. So, 
you know, I, I obviously won't say what we're, you know, I won't go into detail there, but it's that very thing. It's, it's where do you want your views to come from? Is there a certain time frame? Do we spread it out? Do we just, you know, do we, do we look at the player and say, uh, player A is a physically developed player. We can start with him from, you know, right from October. Uh, and player B is, uh, you know, geez, he was a, a really undeveloped guy. It's unfair to judge his draft year minus one season pre-January. You know, it's, it's stuff you see in the USHL happen a lot. And it's stuff you see uh-huh. with Europeans happen a lot in their draft years. A lot of those leagues, like the USHL, I find is a January on league in terms of evaluation because you got so many guys from so many different backgrounds and, and levels of maturity and, 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 and where they played coming in. And same with the Europeans is usually, there's usually a couple of months adjustment period. So that's kind of the things we were trying to, to trying to figure out in terms of how to, how to scout last year. So uh, that's the answer to the first one. Um, this the, uh, the answer to the second question. Uh, the first question about the draft is, yeah, absolutely. Um, there can be information overload. Uh, there can be, you know, just fatigue. Um, w- w- uh, I, uh, I, I sometimes, uh, I sometimes can miss the forest through the trees. Uh, uh, so I, you know, again, my assumption is nobody has to travel. That's vacation time. Like the fact that we're not traveling. Well, if you're at home, why wouldn't you work nine or 10 hours? Because you're still getting more time at home than you would anyway. So it's actually a bonus. If, if I make my guys work nine hours or 10 hours every day, six days a week, five, you know, seven days a week, well, they're actually making out because they're gaining five hours a day that they'd be away to, to be with their families. And it, 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 you know, believe it or not, it turns out that that's not the case. Fatigue, uh, <laughs> fatigue, fatigue, but not mutiny, but fatigue can certainly set in. And, uh, you know, people on my staff are, we got a very open flow of dialogue. Uh, they made it, uh, they made it abundantly clear. So what we ended up doing, uh, what we ended up doing is just, we, we just built vacation, just like a normal corporation. We just built vacation. And we, we would build in a, a vacation, a, a predetermined vacation day. Like you have a long weekend. Uh, we build in a, a predetermined vacation week. Um, but not all guys would get the same weeks off. Not all guys would get, and, and then the fact of the matter is there were certain guys that didn't get any time off uh, or limited time off because their position and their, you know, their pay scale or their, you know, accountability is, is slightly different too. So, um, you know, to, to, to those who are given more and more is expected. Right. So yeah. um, it, again, it certainly did that. And, and what happened is we got to a point um, on the list where we had, we, we really had gone, we'd gone 95 players deep. Um, and all 95 players had gotten, uh, 70 of the players, 70 of the players got the exact same time allotment. And, uh, 25 of the players got 85% of the time allotment spent to the evaluation, be it analytics, be it live scouting, be it discussion, be it, be it video, whatever. Um, so we got to that point and, and realized that, it's diminished returns. I mean, we're not getting to the guy who's 110th on our list. It's just, it's never happened in, in, in 13 years of, of me being there. Um, so once that happened, once we got to that saturation point, uh, we gave them a a big block of time off. Um, and then we, again, and then, and then we, we started, uh, we started right back up on September 15th, uh, to, uh, to, to prepare for the draft. 
And and speaking of the draft itself, I think some people were caught off guard when the LA Kings drafted uh, Quinton Byfield at second overall. I mean, uh, which is strange to say because you think about it. I mean, uh, many many publications held him as the second best player in the draft. Uh, he plays a premium position, but there was of course the talk of whether you guys would go in the direction of a Tim Stutzla. Uh, because you were so flush at center, whether it's Turcotte or Kupari or Dudas or Thomas, uh, I could keep going on, even add Tyler Madden to the mix. Um, or, you know, for example, Jamie Drysdale, because of the the aging process of Drew Doughty and trying mm-hmm. to find that heir apparent. Um, can you take us through your team's calculus on that decision? Because for some people, it, it, it led them to the conclusion that you guys were taking Stutzla before the draft had even started. And of course... Not the case. You end up with Quentin Byfield, a very capable center in his own right. Well, yeah. First of all, um, I mean, very. I love the fact that very little information of what we were doing leaked out. Um, it seems like stuff leaks out every day from a lot of different places uh, and a lot of different organizations and and whatnot. Um, I love the fact that 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 really anybody, everything I read, people were speculating. Uh, there was no direct, you know, causality. There was no direct information. Um, if you, if people were surprised we took Byfield, I think they're shortchanging. Uh, the, the, you know, they're they're just they're not reading the process. Now, you could think we were going to take a player like Stutzel, and they're just truth be told, it, just thinking it was only those two that were in the mix is is a bit short sighted as well. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, um, at times during the process, it wasn't. Stutzel versus Byfield. There were other guys. There were two other players in that mix, and you know, all the way up to the end, there was another player in that mix. So, um, if you're surprised by it, um, I think that's strong. I mean, there's equal. If you're just talking about those two players, you could make an equal case for either one of them. You know, just what you just said there. We're flush at center. Why take another center? The wing makes sense. You know, the fact that the Kings power play over the years is, is underperformed in relation to the league. A guy like Stutzel can run the power play from the half wall. That as, as good as Kopitar is and as good as Doughty is, um, that's not what their forte is. That's not what their strength. So um, Stutzel would, 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 would fit a lot of boxes um, and that would be a logical choice. But in the same vein, all right, we got a lot of setters. Who cares? If worse comes to worse and they all make it and they're all good, we'll move one of them to wing. Or, Again, eventually, and I don't want to seem mercenary, but eventually we're going to have to go out of house to get pieces. If you know, just like back when Dean was the general manager, um, he had to go. He had to outsource. He had to go get Stoll. He had to go get Green. He had to go get Richards. You know, um, Slava Voinov made Jack Johnson expendable. The fact that we had too many D certainly didn't hurt us because one of those D turned into Carter. So um, the fact of the matter is, if we have too many good centers we'll find a spot to play them in our lineup or someone else is going to really want them and pay to get them. So uh, at some point uh, you can never have too many, you know, as I said, if you have too many D it's a great problem to have. If you have too many centers, it's a great problem. It gives you versatility uh, in your lineup and it gives you versatility to uh, address your lineup out of house. And I mean, when you have somebody like Anze Kopitar within your organization, and and people have made the comparison of Quinton Byfield to Anze Kopitar, 
I mean, does that sort of play into it as well? Just thinking about what a perfect mentorship that would be for somebody to pass the torch to a player who profiles similarly and is going to fill a very similar role as the Kings kind of bounce back from this rebuild and move back into contention as a potentially Stanley Cup contender? Well, I mean, certainly it helps. I mean, I think you look at successful teams in the past and, you know, you gravitate towards certain franchises. You look at, you look at what New Jersey did for a time. You look at what Detroit did. I mean, you, you, you know, you look at, you, you look at, you know, it just even go Crosby. I mean, even though Lemieux wasn't playing, Crosby lived with him. You know, he got to learn from him. He got to, he got to, he got exposed to that. You know, you look at what Eisenman was exposed to. You, you look at, you look at all these, these things. So, um, I mean, Kopitar and, and, and Byfield certainly have similarities and there are certain uh, areas of the game where, where, where they really match up. And Kopitar has been an understudy uh, before, and now he's made that transition to the, to the leader the veteran. And why would you not want to expose Byfield to Kopitar? You know, again, it fits, it works, uh, you know, and, in the early stage of Byfield career, he's protected by Kopitar as well. So not only is he learning from him, not only is he exposed to him, um, but the fact of the matter is he doesn't have to play C1 minutes. You know, a lot of times when you put one of these guys into your lineup, they have to, they, they're thrust into a role that's really hard. You know, I mean, look at, and he did, a, he did an admirable job, but, you know, McDavid is thrust into a role where he doesn't really have any protection. He doesn't, you know, He's, he's on an island, um, and he's got to learn it all himself, and he has to play and be successful. Like A guy like Byfield can, can play behind Kopitar. He can learn from Kopitar. You know, he, can, he can get easier minutes sometimes, you know, and, then when, and, and then when things are working, great, and when things aren't working, you know, Anze can help him. So it, it, certainly makes, it certainly makes sense on a lot of levels um, what, what Kopitar does for the development process of Byfield. You know, it's interesting, uh, Mark, when you talk about you can never have enough centers. And uh, I'll share a story. Uh, when I was with the Dallas Stars and uh, in 1998, we, we had too many centers. We, we had way too many centers. So we decided to trade back out of our pick. And we really liked the player. We had too many centers. So we traded back out of our pick and passed on Scott Gomez, who we really liked. Because we had too many centers, yeah. Okay, to your exactly. Point, said nobody ever except us. What a dumb move that was by us. But that being said, you know we talk about Quentin and, and debating about uh, this player, that player, a group of players. But I find that a lot of times that there's not enough time spent or not enough time people understanding. That as you move deeper in the draft, there's other areas where you can get that right shot defenseman. Like if we're talking about Drysdale. And so Helga Grants, and you know, there's a two-parter here. You know, we're talking about the scouting process earlier. Now he was a in my view, he was a classic case of a player who, as you watched him more and more over the course of time, you you, you saw more and more in his game. And I and I think by the end. I mean, quite frankly, I was a little bit surprised he ended up in the second round because I know there was a number of teams that were looking at him in, in the first round. So how important, again, back to this year's draft, with, with knowing what you know about Helga Grands from last year and also that extension of like, you know, what you're looking for in, in, in for different positions 
can be had at different parts of the draft. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, um, if you look at our draft, not this year, but last year, uh, we basically employed something that you were just, that you, that you, that you were just hinting at. Um, you know, we, we had three players ranked with Bjornfort. Um, and we actually, we, we, we had them in the same tier of player, two, uh, two of more forwards, Bjornfort was a D. And we technically, even though they're in the same tier, we had two forwards rated ahead of Bjornfort. But we looked at our pick at 21, and then we looked at our pick at 34 last year, and we realized that at 34, we were going to lose a couple of tiers of defensemen. But it looked like there were four or five forwards from two tiers that one of them would be there. So, like, you look at – so you, so we took Bjornfort, so we wouldn't lose tiers at 34, and then we were right. We kept our top tiers, and there were there were multiple forwards, and we only lost – so we only lost one tier of forward when we get Kelly up. So – uh, if we had if we had done it reverse, we might have lost. You know, if we'd taken the forward, we might have lost five tiers on the D, and we would have only lost one tier on the you know on on the forward. We would have we would have been a negative four. So then this year, you're looking at the same thing. You're looking at grands. Um, uh, again, we thought we thought there was a chance. I know we were talking about it before, before you know before the before we went on air. Uh, we certainly thought there was a chance he was going to go in the late first, and there was one team. Uh, we tried to move up in the first a couple times. There were three players we wanted to move up for. One of them was Grants, um, and we couldn't get any traction. The only team that would that would even consider a move with us was San Jose. And by that time, uh, in the draft, with the amount of picks and 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 what we had left in a tier, uh, we thought it was a a realistic chance that we would get Grants or a player in his tier. So at you know at, at thirty four, um, you know. We look at the value. Um, I think Rands was a first round value, uh, certainly, and certainly in terms of talent. And it's hard to find those again. As I said, in LA, we haven't had a guy who who walks the blue line like that. We haven't had a guy who dictates offense on the power play or even even strengthen the blue line. Uh, he's he's big. He's competitive. Um, he's talented. His 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 playmaking and and his sense are 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 are, are higher level. Um, so. You don't usually find that in the package of, of that shot defenseman, um, and you know you just you're just happy to get him there. We were talking a little bit about Helga Granz before we started this interview, and you were saying um, that I think you limit your exposure to the Helenka Gretzky as well. And I, I, I think about Helga Granz, and I go, uh, a defenseman this size who can skate that well and can play that well in the offensive zone falling to the second round. How does that happen? And you think about how poorly he started his year uh, wearing the the three crowns for Sweden at the Holinka Gretzky. Do you think that in some way the Kings were kind of the beneficiary of that in a little bit? Because perhaps he doesn't drop if he doesn't get off to such a, uh, a poor start with that tournament. And I think even by his admission, he would agree that it wasn't his best showing of the year. Uh, he seemed to get only better from that point too. You know, yes, I, I, I think... Listen, he didn't have a good Holinka. Um, again, I I didn't watch the Holinka. Um, again, it's it's something that are uh, you know I go into detail in another time. But but uh, when you have that, it's the first tournament of the year, so there's an artificial importance assigned to it because it's the first time you can do it. It's the Holinka tournament. It is a benchmark tournament. It's been around. It's 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 got all the teams. You know, like you go to February and Canada's not there. 
You go sometimes to a tournament in the U.S. isn't there. You go to a tournament in Russia isn't there. They're all there. And the other thing is all the players are there too. Like, you know, we see it in the under-18s in, in April. Some guys are still playing in their leagues. Um, they don't come there. So this is the one tournament during the year that has all the players. So you have all this, whether it's artificial, whether it's uh, – but you have all this importance layered on one tournament. and you have all the scouts there. I mean, every team brings four or five guys. Some I've seen I've seen teams that have eight or nine guys there. So now you have you know eight or nine guys writing reports um, on a week long tournament. It takes a long time to get a good or a bad performance out of the system. I mean, you know, if, if you've got five guys there and you watch them play three times, I mean, you've got to get fifteen reports out of your system. Um, it's not easy to do. And again. Uh, we've been very good at measuring those tournaments and, you know, and assigning the right amount of importance, I think to them, but it still took Grands a while to get off the mat for us. I mean, I, I think I told you before, like Grands was a slow burn for us. Uh, he wasn't a, he certainly didn't hold his position on our list in, uh, September or October. And then, um, in November, he started to move his way up our list, certainly not to the, to where he ended up, but. Uh, he had a little more of a slow burn and then you start watching him in the league. He played some Liga games. Uh, you watch him in some of the J in some of the J 20 tournaments, some of the J 20 leagues. So, um, I think we've done well at using the entirety of the season. Now that doesn't mean the Holinka isn't important. Um, because you're still, it's, it's important. It's just, I think, I think first impressions are very powerful. And I think that guys, it just takes a little bit longer for guys to, to get that first impression out of a scout's mind. Mark, don't you believe, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth or beliefs in your head, but, you know, I, I always say this, that just because a player may not have performed very well at a certain stage of the evaluation process doesn't mean he's not a good player. And, you know, and maybe the player wasn't capable of showing fully what, what what his potential is and, and that's why you have to continuously watch over a period of time and back to your point about like how do first impressions impact that evaluation over time and you know being able to keep your mind open as you're watching that player you know how important is that to impress upon players like I said I mean is, is that not critical to 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 evaluating I I agree like here's the thing. Players have no idea how important the first impression is. Um, and, and the, and the thing is, the problem is it's, it's very, it, it, it's, it's, it's not all their fault. Um, in the Hoenka tournament. Yeah. The onus is on the player. Um, if he puts forth a bad performance because he isn't into it or he isn't in shape or, um, it's a summer tournament or, 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 or whatever. Um, that's a problem. And, and that's something the players shouldn't allow to happen. Uh, I, I really think players don't understand. Like, you know, I go in to watch a player. One of my scouts tells me I've got to come in to see this guy. And, you know, sometimes I will have watched video before. Sometimes I will not have, depending on what time of year it is. Um, that first impression I go in, you know, and he's, and he's bad. Uh, you know, first I'm looking at my scout. I'm like, why, why am I here? And then the second thing is, now I got to go back to see him because my scout says he's this and we're all, we're, we're all creatures of, you know, we're, we're all prone to biases. We're all prone to, you know, uh, 
there's there's some fixed mindedness in all of us. Um, I'm already predisposed to go in, and I, I already don't want to go back. You know what I mean? When I see somebody who didn't perform and I don't think is a good player, regardless of how open minded I am, I'm already there's already a negative component to it. Where I'm a human being, um, right. so a- again, I think I think the players don't realize how often they're making a first impression with a guy. I mean, the average OHL player is making a first impression probably 10 times a year. You know, he might be making impression depending on, on his level because of GM and stuff. He might be making a first impression 12 to 15 times a year. Um, I don't think, I don't think the players realize that. Now, the other thing you got into with, you just said is sometimes a player isn't prepared or isn't able to put his best performance down. Now, I think that's the case with a guy like Grant's, you know, his skating notes, no structural flaws. Um, he's a big body who hasn't grown into his coordination, hasn't grown into his body. And I think his skating at the beginning of the year showed that, um, you know, he got over his toes a little bit. Um, sometimes his pivoting or his transitional movements that, that quicker foot movement, that coordination wasn't there. He broke down a little towards the end of shifts, especially the latter parts of the game. So um, if you're watching Grands, you can come away with the impression that his skating is below average. And, 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 and it certainly is. But if you don't go any deeper, well, why is his skating below average? The first thing you got to ask, is there a technical flaw? If there's a technical flaw, it's a, it's a problem. And it's something, it's something that should downgrade the player. But if it's a strength-based issue or a shape-based issue or a maturity-based issue, it's something that shouldn't affect the player. You know, it's something you say, wow, he's doing this right now with this deficiency that won't be a deficiency in a year or two years or three years. So with Grands, I think there were a couple things. You know, you look at him and he's big, but there were a couple times he looked awkward. You know, um, there were a couple times he lunged defensively and he doesn't have that structure and space in his skating to recover where a guy like Drysdale Drysdale could take the wrong angle at the wrong time against the wrong player. And in two steps, he's back in position. You know, it's, it's just how it's just how his skating is. It's just how it's, you know, if Grants takes the wrong step, the guy's by him. So, um, you, I think you need to factor that in to when you, when you evaluate his poor performance, something like that has to come in. And it certainly did with us. Now, for me personally, somebody who left a really great first impression was the next defenseman that you drafted. That was Brock Faber. I remember going to the the Fall Classic in Pittsburgh and I watched uh, the national team play and I came away from those two viewings and I said to myself, man, that, that Faber kid, where did he come from? I actually thought he played better than Sanderson in one of those games. Now, of course, that didn't hold over the year and I think their draft position reflects that, but uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about his game and what you and your staff were drawn to? Because I think people might be sleeping on this prospect a little bit. Uh, he definitely was a favorite for us over at Elite Prospects. Well, I hope you guys are right. You know, I, I'm really rooting for you guys to be right on that one. Um, hey, and, and vice versa. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm hoping we're right all the time. You know? Yeah. Um, no, uh, he, he, again, if you're watching the game, players can stand out in various ways. Like, um, Sanderson, again, you, you like in Sanderson. Sanderson stands out when you watch him play. Even in the games, and again, I saw games where Faber outperformed Sanderson. That, you know, that was that was the anomaly. But even in the games, Faber outperformed Sanderson. Sanderson was more noticeable. Sanderson did more things. Sanderson, you know, so um, a guy like Faber 
stands out in a much different way than a guy like Sanderson or a guy like Drysdale or even a guy like Grants. You know, Grants can stand out positively or negatively depending on whether you're watching his defensive game or his offensive game, but he stands out. Faber, when you're watching, if you if you start watching the game closely, he stands out in a couple areas. Well, his skating, again, his skating for me is obvious. Uh, I think he, I think he's in the second tier of skaters in that draft. Um, you know, which which puts him not elite, but it puts him at the next level down. Uh, and for me, the subtleties, if you're watching the game, the way Faber closed on opponents is something I don't see defensemen do at that level. Uh, it's just not something they do well. You know, most of the defensemen at that level have holes in their defensive game, especially. Um, and even the ones that are good and versatile, uh, he takes away space and closes and and kills plays I think better than most defensemen in the draft uh the fact of the matter is he doesn't stand out offensively and when you're watching guys in this age uh in the age of analytics and in the age of that offense tends to be what stands out and what you're looking for um so when you look at Faber you don't see that offense you don't see him stand out but then you make it you know, then you're prone to making another critical mistake lack of offense does not mean lack of puck movement does not mean lack of transition does not mean lack of plays being made. You know, I think Faber gets the puck up the ice as fast as most defensemen in, in, in this draft. I think Faber transitions equally well with his feet and his skating. I think there's a versatility there. Faber's puck movement might not be dynamic like, like uh, Drysdale's, um, but it's similarly effective in terms of the speed, the way the puck goes up the ice. So when you start looking a little deeper, um, he stands out in in less uh, in less obvious ways and in less categorized ways. I would say. And and moving on to to your next draft pick, I believe you guys took a goalie in the third round, if I'm not mistaken. Here, just loading up the uh, page. We took Markin in the fourth. Uh, we took Markin in the fourth. Uh, yeah, we we traded for sixty for Leas Anderson, uh, and then we and then we used sixty six on Casper Samantha. Right, right. I had it totally mixed up. Um, but but Simone Tuval, Laferriere, we got a fair bit of them on the website. We did a little bit of writing on them and everything. But yep. uh, Yuho Markinen was somebody who we weren't terribly familiar with. Can you tell us what your staff liked about his game and what made him a selection for you in the fourth round? Well, Christian Rutu, um, again, Christian has a lot of contacts over in Europe. And, uh, you know, he, he, he gets information on some guys that are under the radar. Obviously, marketing was a little under the radar, um, and and Christian and I happened to be in Europe together um, at the same time. This information came out, so we went and watched him play a couple times when I was over there. Um, there were a lot of things about him that Christian and I certainly liked, and and Christian was 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 very high on him, um, and very early to the process on him. Uh, he started out the year as 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 the third goalie on his junior team. And again, that, that's something that the context, that context usually gets overlooked. You know, a guy comes out later and you're just focusing on, again, recency bias. You're just focusing on the now. Um, you, you rarely hear of a guy who's the third goalie on his junior team in Finland playing in a Mestis game before the year ends. It just doesn't happen. You know, I mean, he had to jump, he had to jump six or seven spots just to get there. So um, that shows us something, you know, it shows us a development curve. It shows us uh, a mental flexibility, a mental toughness. Um, 
and it shows us uh, the fact that 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 some of these skills are are, are evolving very quickly. Um, the fact that he could, the fact that he could be effective in a in a, in a Finland's second second pro league uh, in that span of time certainly caught our notice. Uh, and then he played in uh, when we were in February. He uh, he played in one of the February tournaments, and and I thought again. People weren't really watching him. They were watching Camesso. They were watching some other guys. They were watching Askarov. Um, uh, he's just a guy that we were already kind of focused on. And uh, and I thought he did quite well in that tournament. Um, so he's a guy that that, that, that Christian certainly, certainly found um, ahead of the curve. Our biggest concern with him is he played really well uh, in, in some Mestis games and, and some early season, preseason Finland games. Where we didn't think anybody, we didn't think anybody was really on him the way we were. We we had kind of targeted him in the fourth round, um, and uh, it started to lead to some concern that he might have uh, he might have played himself he might have played himself a round up or something like that. So uh, that was one of the parts of that this pandemic based season where we were uh, it caused us a little trepidation. We certainly would have preferred he not played in those games early in the season. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting how the, the pause uh, created opportunities for other players that may not have been uh, uh, there and created some angst for certain mm-hmm. teams that had players rated. Now I'm gonna, I, I wanted to ask you about Martin Kromiak, who I've watched mm-hmm. for a number of years and really thought that he, he was terrific in Kingston. So two parts, you know, him playing like – with Shane Wright, a young player, I thought they had tremendous chemistry, and it's not easy to play with good players. But, Mark, do, do, do you see a scenario in the new year where players in Europe might come over to the to the CHL, like Martin Kromiak, like Jan Mishak, uh, to get more exposure? You know, I, I, you know the intricacies of the transfer card, you know, was withheld getting, you know, getting rid of those. I, I don't see why it doesn't happen more. I mean, um, the fact of the matter is a lot of these kids play, they're too good for juniors and they're not quite ready for the pros. Um, and then they get caught in that middle ground and Chromiak's one of them, especially Chromiak, you know, my Zach did a little bit more. He was a little bit more of a regular. Um, he was a level up in terms of his performance and a player, uh, in the first stage of the year against men. Um, but that being said, you know, I, I think it's probably the best of both worlds. Like if these guys come to the Quebec, you know, Quebec league, the Ontario league, WHL early, um, they miss out on some of that playing against men, some of that, you know, some, some of that element and they don't measure themselves. And it is a little easier for the guys over there to, to make a case for the world junior. Although we're seeing that change a little bit, but, uh, again, why would you not take the second half of the year? I mean, Chromiak, Myzak, they're play. Uh, uh, Myzak played Bacalia. You know, he plays twenty plus minutes a game. He plays power play. He plays PK. Chromiak plays with right. Plays with wisdom. <laughs> he plays twenty plus minutes a game. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you can how you can buy that kind of exposure, that kind of um, that kind of ice time, that kind of. Uh, you know, that kind of usage. Uh, and you, and it's, as I said, you get to spend the first half of the year in, in your home uh, against, you know, against a higher peer group. And then you get to be the second half um, where, you, where you're coming 
again, I, I think the first half of a, of a junior season is adjustment anyway. Um, so, you know, they're skipping that feeling out process and, and they're replacing it with, with playing at a high level of competition against older players. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, another player you took in that round? And that would be Ben Meehan, a re-entry for the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders. I, uh, I had him appear on my radar when I was at the World Junior A Challenge in, in Dawson Creek and was pretty intrigued by what I saw. And, and you know what? It was, uh, it was interesting to me to see that he wasn't rated in many publications, I'd assume because of the health uh, issues there and, and injuries and situation like that. Uh, what did your staff see from Meehan that, that warranted a pick in the fifth round? Well, you know, Tony, Tony Gasparini and Teddy, uh, Ted Belisle, he was actually in consideration for us um, in the seventh round uh, the year before. He's a draft year plus one. He's a pass-through um, for this year's draft. So, you know, he was on the radar. Uh, when I say he was a consideration, I, I just mean his, you know, he was, his name was in and about where the seventh round would have fallen on our list. Um, so it's not like he was the next guy to go or anything like that. It's just a guy that was, it was a guy that was talked about and, and, and evaluated, uh, in, in the seventh round for us previously. So they went into the season already, you know, already knowing the player already seeing, he almost was drafted by us. Um, I think the biggest thing with him is, and again, it's, it's, is it a benefit to us? Uh, if he played a whole season, he, he doesn't go. Uh, where you know we, we don't draft him where we where we took him. Um, the fact that he's a draft year plus one, and he misses two thirds of the season, that really works against you. You know, being a being a reentry hurts you anyway. Although the NHL is getting more wise to to the uh, the effectiveness of drafting older players, um, but it's still it still tends to push guys down around two or even three rounds sometimes, depending who they are. Um, so with me and uh, the, the combination of his, of his injury and being a, a, a pass through, I think it certainly pushed him back. If he weren't, uh, if he weren't someone who, who was evaluated by us last year in that, in that framework, uh, I think we might have, we might have passed or missed on him as well. So, so now, you know, I'm going to shift to another area and you have all these good young prospects. You talk about Turcotte and Akil Thomas and Bjorn Fott and Kaliev and Fagamo and the, the players you just added. You know, what, what, what is important in your view now for these players to continue their development in, 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 in a landscape that is makes it very difficult for them to do what they normally do for development. Well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's harder, it's harder to do the things that were, were, were readily available to all these guys. You know, they, you, you can't train in a group of 20 players. You can't go to the gym without taking safeguards. You, some gyms are closed. Some rinks are closed. The accessibility isn't there. So um, all of that factors in, you know, what what we need we need these guys to take ownership right i mean um it's usually something we teach them uh by year 3 of them being in our in our development system you know the the ownership and the pro mentality is something that is rarely there from day 1 you know i can think of wayne simmons and i can think of kyle clifford um they were the they were the outliers for us they had a pro mentality 
and an ownership in terms of their development um, as 18-year-olds that, again, you, you know, I mean, Simmons is a, a draft re-entry that everyone thought was a, a crazy pick, and he never spent a day in the American Hockey League. Um, that's due to our development staff, and it's due to his ownership of his development. Um, usually, younger players don't have to take ownership of their development because it's done for them. You know, we have them come to L.A., we coordinate their training with their trainers at home. They're training with, you know, like 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 they're training with the Connor McDavid's of the world with Gary Roberts. So they're training in a in a group setting, you know, in in wherever they are. Um, so usually this development aspect is done for them, and it's a back and forth for about two or three years before they see a peer going by them, or they're in the American League or whatnot. There's usually a there's usually a a uh, a roadblock in front of them where they where the light bulb goes off. Oh, I see what they're saying. I got to do this. So the mm -hmm. problem is we need a Turcotte to do it now. You know, we need a Turcotte to take ownership now. We need a Byfield to take ownership now. Um, we need we need these young players, Thomas Fagamo. We need them all to take ownership of their development and be an active participant in it. You know, and a dri actually a driving force in it now where they could be led before. So you see Fagamo taking control and going to Sotitalia to make sure he plays. You see, uh, again, we have a benefit that, that, that some teams don't, a lot of teams don't have. We have, we own a team in Germany. We saw five prospects go there. Well, you know, they have to want to go there. You know, we can't make them go. Um, you know, we can apply pressure, but, but so these guys this year have to, put their development in the forefront. The American League doesn't start till January or February. These guys like like Turcotte until training camp starts, he has to he has to be the driving force in his development to make sure that when training camp starts, he's ahead of the curve, not at the curve or behind the curve. We're running up against it, but on that note, I wanted to sneak one question in about Archer Kalia because he's somebody who, going into the draft, there was a ton of controversy, a ton of questions about the off-ice stuff. And, of course, I think that's the only way one might explain a player who scores 50 goals in the OHL uh, falling to the second round as he did for you guys in, in 2019. Uh, where do you stand on all that? I mean, how do you process that information as a scout? Um, what can you verify? What can you push back against? What's the overall sense that the organization has about Arthur Kaliev, his commitment to the game, and and his long term projection as he enters a, a pivotal draft plus two season here? Well, I mean, his commitment to the game. Listen, he was very immature his draft year, and I mean, in relation to his peer group, he was immature. In relation to younger guys, he was immature. Um, just in a just just in a personal level. Uh, and that manifests itself in some areas in the ice and some areas off the ice in terms of work, in terms of accountability, in terms of attention to detail defensively. Um, it's no secret. And um, I think he's made huge strides. That being said, he's still on the immature side of his peer group. He's still on the, you know, he still needs to work on other areas of his game. Again, He's come a long way, and 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 as a staff, we applaud the strides he's made defensively, the strides he's made uh, looking after certain areas of his game, uh, in, in in developing certain areas of his game. Um, but the fact of the matter, like, see, he's committed. Like Kelly works on his game as much as anyone I see. The only thing is, is you see a lot of these players work on things they're good at, 
Like that's what we do as human beings. You know, um, if I'm really good at something, I want to do it. Uh, and he's really good at shooting. He's really good at stick handling. He's really, you know, those are the things he really works on. And, and, and again, you know, he needs to put that focus and that energy onto things he's not as good at. You know, he needs to improve his first three steps. You know, he needs to change his mindset defensively. And you saw him at the World Junior do it in a, in a short time frame. He was a, a capable defender. His defense got to at least an average level where the coach could put him on the ice and not worry about him. Um, that's good enough at that stage of his career. It's not good enough in the AHL. It's not good enough in the NHL. So what Arthur has to do is transfer some of that passion and work ethic to things that are uncomfortable to do. And, and that's maturity. Um, until, you, until, you, until you're mature enough, you don't realize that. You, 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 you shortchange the process. And again, I think he's come a long way. Uh, I think he's doing a lot of the things he needs to do. God knows our development staff is working with him all the time. Um, and, and really helping him understand that, but but all he needs—I mean, he's got every tool there is. He just needs to to focus the same energy and passion to scoring goals on developing some of the other areas of his game. Well, Mark, you've been super generous with your time and your insights, and we really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to have to have you on the show again at some point. I, I know our audience is going to love this interview. Uh, I've been JD Burke. Our guest was Mark Yanetti, the Director of Scouting for the Los Angeles Kings, and my co-host has been Craig Button of TSN. Thanks so much for listening to the Elite Prospects Podcast. Hey, this is Rob from the Elite Prospects Podcast. I'm the producer. Uh, if you guys are a product or brand or a company that would like to sponsor the Elite Prospects Podcast, let me know uh, via email at Robert dot love at eliteprospects.com or just message us on any of our social media platforms. We'll get back to you and we can talk about uh, the next steps. Thanks.